You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 184.2. Listeners who have been listening for a while know that decimal points means that we mean that we are down a host. Uh, today, that missing host is David Grubbs, uh, who has family in town and also family out of town. Uh, Katie Grubbs, as we are recording, is preparing to defend her doctoral dissertation. Hopefully, by the time this drops... Uh, we will be able to congratulate Christian Feminist podcast host, Dr. Katie Grubbs. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and say that out loud in confidence that, in fact, we will do it. How many think, people do you know who didn't pass their dissertation defense? Uh, I can't think of any. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I mean, if, if you can get professors to commit to a two-hour block of time, generally speaking, you got a pretty good odds of... Uh, not scheduling a second block, I figure. Well, and also, like, your major professor is the one who sets this, and if you go in and you're not prepared, your major professor looks like a moron. Yeah. You, you only uh, need two out of three people to approve you, so provided the major <laughs> professor has enough political clout to convince one other person, it really doesn't matter how bad you are. True enough. Although I, I was in the odd position of having uh, three professors from three departments uh, at my defense. So there was no no politicking, huh? No, there wasn't, but there was also a sense of uh, professional courtesy that, that, you know, you will, uh, some people might stab their own uh, department colleagues in the back, but generally cross-department uh, Ides of Marching is frowned upon. Yeah, well, and outside readers typically approve anyway. Yeah, Although, true uh, again, yeah. I don't know a single person who didn't pass their dissertation defense, and I don't think I know a single person who wasn't unanimous. I think that's just not done, at least not in the humanities, maybe in the sciences, because their dissertation defenses are uh, much much more stressful, from my understanding. Fair enough. Well, listeners, if you have uh, stories of people failing their defenses, uh, feel free to uh, write in and talk about that. Uh, I think we've kind of overshot the time for introduction, so that's Michael Farmer. He's at Crown College. That's Hi, me. listeners. <laughs> Uh, today is a listener feedback episode. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get through it without throwing punches this time. I was just thinking uh, that. <laughs> Although there is another Eucharist uh, email. so uh, There is indeed. There is indeed. And we're also uh, lacking David Grubbs, who usually uh, keeps us well behaved. So let's see what happens, shall we? Uh, I'm going to start to, I'm going to start the first email uh, by mispronouncing someone's name, I'm just sure. Uh, this is from Jonathan... Engeline is how I'm going to say it. Jonathan, if you want to email us a pronunciation guide and a uh, stern reprimand for my bad pronunciation, feel free. Jonathan says this. Hello, just wanted to take the time to send you guys an email of fandom and give a hearty thanks to you guys for fueling my intellectual pursuits. I started listening to you guys about a year ago and began with your podcast on metamodernism. 
I've been graduated from college from college for a year and a half now and have really needed the intellectual content that you all present. I went to Bethel University, so up, up in your neck of the woods, Michael, yep. and graduated with a BFA in studio art, trying to pursue a fine art career on my own. I was really inspired by the way you guys present content and engage the world. I can honestly say that the ways I've approached my own community on my own websites has been inspired by your own. Recently, uh, co-founder of my website, Another Bethel Grad, and I have created our own podcast, and we must say we owe you a debt of gratitude uh, for feeding our interests, and we both love the sincerity of your approach in engaging the world. And see, I, I, I can't remember, Michael. Is sincerity the good trilling word or the bad trilling word? I don't remember either, but who, uh, who thinks of you as sincere? <laughs> anyway, I, I'm going to keep reading Jonathan here before I uh, address that. We've really grown from your podcast and feel cemented in being able to be satisfied by Christ and our Christianity, but also embrace, engage, and react to the ideas and experiences of the world around us. You have shown us that engaging ideas far different from our own is not a taboo thing, or even so that we shouldn't fear or even so that we shouldn't fear doing it at all. There we go. I stumbled over my words there, or Jonathan's words at any rate. All this to say that we really appreciate you guys and wanted to send a response of encouragement and gratitude for the work you do. We're trying uh, to engage the world around us and taking small steps to do so with both our websites. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll put these uh, website links in our show notes. Because, yeah, uh, yeah you don't, you don't want to have to spell Jonathan's name out loud. <laughs> We're pretty young and new to the things we want to do, but we thank you that you exist and are going to keep listening to as much as we can. So that's from Jonathan Engeline and Micah Erickson, who I assume is the second podcast founder. I haven't had a chance yet to listen to this podcast, Michael. Have you had a chance to sample it? I haven't, but uh, I'll have to So neither one of us has a single, ba- a single bad thing to say about it. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, thank you, Jonathan. I mean, it's always good to hear that uh, we are doing good things and you know benefiting people. It seems like that this is a common... Uh, listener for us, Michael, is the person who graduated from college and is kind of looking for a continuation of those conversations. I mean, really, in our own story, that's how the podcast itself started. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And I think we give a history of the podcast in some relatively early episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, the... Uh... Oh, I can't even remember. I, I, I... It was either when I was on, on with Trip Fuller or with uh, the partially examined life guys i gave a history of that there too but i can't remember which because i'm very tired yeah well anyway one of our one of our episodes and i think it's just called the christian humanist podcast Mm -hmm. is is uh kind of a brief history of our show it's like our second anniversary episode or something it's it's oh okay okay yeah yeah it's a season premiere a couple years in that's right that's right i don't remember i don't remember what the name of the episode is but i'm sure if you go back you can hear about why we started this if you're interested in doing so but it is Mm -hmm. uh, it is as jonathan says because we uh we didn't have anybody else to talk to about (laughs) or i didn't i think you and grubbs probably still did you you make us sound so pathetic, Michael. Are, are we not pathetic? <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have to wallow in it. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> Won't you hit us with another email? This is from Peter Gertson, who continues to send us a pronunciation guide, even though he's written in several times. I appreciate that, Peter, because I still yes, would have pronounced you, your name wrong. <laughs> Those German names. 
Yes, yes. If you if you want uh, properly pronounced German, go listen to the Pietist Schoolman podcast. Although you know, I think Jonathan's last name is French. Oh, is it? Well, son of a gun. Well, I, I would have pronounced that name Angelion, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's not French, I really sound like an idiot. Oh, shoot. Okay. Peter writes, when I heard your episode on names, I knew I must write to tell you about my eccentric friend Jerome, not his real name, who does not name his children. He does, of course, assign them words by which they shall be called, but these words are emphatically not their names. Their names will be given by God, as described in Revelation 2.17 and 3.12. I naturally think this is insane, but the more (laughs) I've thought about it, the more I've appreciated the deep truth at the core of this non-naming. We were created for eternal fellowship with God, and there is something beautiful and right about making one's identity strictly provisional until this purpose can be fully realized. To date, however, I have given names to all of my own children. A great deal more can be said about Jerome's philosophy of naming and his other remarkable ideas and lifestyle choices, but I'll restrain myself out of respect for his privacy and integrity. Man, I wish Peter weren't restraining himself, because (laughs) I want to hear about these remarkable ideas and lifestyle choices. Oh man, <laughs> I and see, Michael. I mean, you you can tell me if you think about this differently, but I think that assigning a name to a human being kind of assumes that the person to whom you're assigning the name is going to die at some point. Maybe I maybe I've spent too much time with you and Martin Heidegger, but uh, <laughs> I, I just kind of think of names as sort of inherently provisional. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think of them as empty vessels to be filled by the the life of the of the person. But that you know, our name our name episode kind of demonstrates that that's not the ancient Hebrew way of thinking about it. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna remarkable I'm gonna ideas and lifestyle choices. <laughs> I, I think that's going to be the title of my autobiography. <laughs> very good, very good. All right, well, I'm going to read another one. This is from Brandon Gerbacht, and uh, this is the one that Michael alluded to earlier that might get the uh, the uh, fists swinging again. Uh, Brandon says thus, Well, now you've done it. Somebody brought up communion, and now the whole kit and caboodle is in jeopardy. Firstly, what I've been taught and what I believe as a Lutheran, Brandon, not me, uh, we confess in the real presence of Christ at the table, For me, this holds true to scriptural teaching and avoids being too specific. How Christ is present in a communion, in communion, pardon me, and the right hand of God is a mystery, but we ought not believe it untrue simply because we cannot understand it. The other thing that's interesting, and my pastor said to me, and it seems to make sense in my brain, some churches are always trying to protect Christ from sinners. This is in relation to all the conditions some churches demand to take communion. But what remains in my mind is Christ still offered and gave communion to Judas. If Christ determined that Judas could receive communion, I suppose I'm in a place to receive it too. Nathan, don't be down that you're not taking communion to Roman church. I don't think I was. That's what us Lutherans call the Catholic Church, as we believe Lutheranism is the universal church, and he provides a tongue-stuck-out emoticon there. Uh Read the Eucharistic prayer that the priest prays beforehand, and you won't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, and that prayer reads thus. He provides the text of it. Therefore, O Lord, as we celebrate the memorial of the blessed passion, the resurrection from the dead, and the glorious ascension into heaven of Christ, your Son, your Lord, we, your servants and your holy people, offer to your glorious majesty from the gifts that you have given us this pure victim, this holy victim, this spotless victim, the holy bread of the eternal life and chalice of everlasting salvation, 
be pleased to look upon these offerings with a serene and kindly countenance and to accept them as you are pleased to accept the gifts of your servant Abel, the just, the sacrifice of Abraham, our father in faith, and the offering of your high priest Melchizedek, a holy sacrifice, a spotless victim. And now back to Brandon's text. My understanding is that they believe they're sacrificing Christ on their behalf to the Father, to which I, I thought only Christ could sacrifice himself on our behalf, not the church sacrificing Christ on our behalf. It also demonstrates that they are continually locked into the sacrificial system, which I am pretty sure was taken care of, according to Hebrews 10. Lastly, according to the Roman Church in the Council of Trent, we are all anathema, so yes, even though Farmer thinks we're all Christians with different identities, and I agree, the Roman Church does not. Thus, I leave you with Frank the Hippie Pope, and he provides a link to uh, a YouTube clip. Uh, and he ends with a variation of our sign-off, Let Your Sins Be Strong, Let the Refutation of Heretical Doctrine Be Stronger. Spoken like a true Lutheran. Uh, indeed. <laughs> um, did, did, the, uh, did the Roman Catholic Church not admit that Protestants are Christian after Vatican II? Oh gosh, I didn't research this before we started recording, so I'll, I'll defer to you on that. I mean, I, I, I didn't research it either. That's that's my that is my understanding is that they I know they did with the Orthodox Church. Uh uh-huh. Um. I but I I think they did with the Protestants. I don't. I do not think they continue to think of us as anathema. Okay. All right. Just now, like uh, uh, just like I don't think most Lutherans think the Pope is the Antichrist. Although right, that's uh, right. that's part of their official doctrine as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, and, and honestly, I, I was happy to leave that one after our last listener feedback episode, so I'm not going to necessarily throw any more logs on that fire right now. That's right, and I don't think either one of us were taking a position on whether the Catholic view of the Eucharist is the accurate one or not. Our disagreement no, was no, a practical I, disagreement, not a, uh, not a doctrinal disagreement. Well, I mean, I, I think it was a doctrinal disagreement in that you were holding metaphysics to be primary and I was holding ethics to be primary, and that is a theological dispute. Yeah. But it's not the same theological dispute that Brandon's pointing to. Right. So, sorry, Brandon, I'm not taking the bait here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, even though you actually are a, a Calvinist and I am not. <laughs> well, and, I mean, Calvinists, Calvinists believe that the Holy Spirit is particularly present at communion. Mm-hmm. Without it being consubstantiation, as the Lutherans believe, or transubstantiation, as the Catholics believe, uh, Calvinists do not believe it's just a symbol. The way the followers of Zing- Zwingli, right, b- believe. So, I mean, there, there's there's this whole range of opinions. But on the other hand, the the Presbyterian table, I, at least the ones at all the churches I've been to, are open to Christians of all stripes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the Lutheran table is. Yeah, I, I haven't researched that either. So once again, listeners, my uh, lack of preparation is showing through brilliantly. Well, the nice thing about these uh, listener feedback episodes is they don't require that much preparation. Apparently they do because we're flailing. <laughs> yeah, we're sh- showing <laughs> contempt to our listeners who were kind enough to write in. Or unkind enough uh, in the case of Brandon Gerbrock. I see what you're trying to do and it's not going to work. <laughs> Nathan and I have had our fight for the next five years. <laughs> is that is that how often we're allowed to fight? Apparently, <laughs> I guess it's actually like seven years, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I and, and it's funny. I mean, in the Facebook exchanges on this, you know, listeners have speculated that we have fairly regular fights, and then some listeners say you've never really fought. 
So, uh, yeah, just about everyone agrees that we were about to reach across hundreds of miles and punch each other in the teeth the last listener feedback episode. Yeah, it's, if you'd been in the room, I don't know what would have happened. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you've definitely got reach on me. This, uh, this next email is from Seth Lancaster, or Lancaster. <laughs> I started listening. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I, I was just wondering if Seth planted, uh, Plantagenet is going to write in, or Plantagenet is going to write in next. <laughs> I started listening to your podcast back in October, and have been working my way through the old episodes ever since, while simultaneously attempting to keep up with those most recently released. I want to I wanna pause for a second and point out that according to Judge John Hodgman, the only place I take ethical advice, that is the appropriate way to listen to a podcast that you come to late in the game. You keep listening to new episodes and go back and listen to the old ones in order. Oh, there you go. So that's, that is, uh, you, you are obeying internet law there, Seth. Having just <laughs> listened to episode 100 today, <laughs> I thought it would be a good time to email in with a few thoughts. Now, episode 100 is one of the few ones that I remember because the, the, uh, the episode is on old 100. It's a David Grubbs-led episode, and it's mm-hmm. about uh, the doxology. Yes, indeed. Firstly, a personal comment. Two of my favorite things in the world are the Backs of the Future and Lord of the Rings trilogies, and your inability to agree on their mutual <laughs> awesomeness saddens me. I like both of them. Uh, I think David does too, doesn't he? It's just, I think so, yeah. It's yeah. just me. However, I'm glad to see that there's a Star Wars triptych coming up. Maybe that will make me feel better. That that was a good trilogy of episodes, I thought. Yeah, uh, uh, Danny was on that instead of uh, mm-hmm. instead of Grubbs, but we had fun with that one, I thought. Secondly, a personal question. I'm currently working toward an MFA in creative writing. Yes, I'm one of those. And I have a strong (laughs) desire to be a Christian writer of literary fiction, as opposed to a writer of Christian fiction. Having recently listened to your episode on Flannery O'Connor and the one on Christian fiction, I wonder if you, as readers of of literature, have any specific advice for fiction writers regarding the intersection of faith and art. You want to pause and take that one on before we move to the second half? Uh, the Christian fiction episode is another one I do not remember recording. Mm-hmm. So I don't have much to say about that episode in particular. Any specific advice, it's it's hard to say because the, the, the Christian fiction writers all do different things. Now, I am, I'm shopping around an essay I wrote, um, kind of a popular level essay, that argues that the uh, the goal of Christian art in general at least in the 20th and 21st centuries, which are the ones that I study, um, should be to re-enchant a disenchanted world. But mm-hmm. again, what that looks like is going to be pretty radically different from person to person. So Tolkien, for example, re-enchants our world by presenting us with another world that has certain parallels to our own, but is in no way like a one-to-one allegory. Mm-hmm. Updike does it by... by showing the world we live in in such magnificent imagined detail that all of a sudden you become aware of of the the world in a new way. Uh O'Connor and Percy do it by 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 demonstrating the the emptiness of the of the disenchanted world and kind of halfway pointing to something else. But so the way you do that, I, I, I do think it's your responsibility as a Christian artist to re-enchant, but the way you do that is going to depend kind of on your own metaphysical beliefs and your own aesthetic approaches. Uh, mm-hmm. So I guess that's the ad- advice I have there. And, uh, you know, I, I was going to say that I'll send you that article if you want, but I want to see if I can get it published and then 
then I'll, <laughs> then I'll send it out. Do you Very have good, any advice there, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, I'd add a, a fourth point of reference. You know, our recent episode on Shusaku Endo is another uh, way to do Christian fiction. I mean, there uh, it is approaching it from what I would call a, a more Book of Job perspective. Uh, the idea that Christianity tells truth about human suffering and even human meaninglessness uh, that offers faith as an answer, and, and faith as you see it formulated in Hebrews 11 as as the substance of things unseen rather than something that can be demonstrated, something that's inherently beyond what you can perceive or even think about. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, we've got a lot of good models there. What I would say, uh, just on a, a very concrete level, and you're not by any means uh, obligated, Seth, to heed this call on my part, but I would love to see novelists who are Christian give the Christian presses a chance to become something that they're not right now. So send your manuscripts to them as well as to the mainstream publishers. See if they will have their own little uh, road to Damascus experience and maybe become what we here at the Christian Humanist wish they would become. But understand that if you do that, you're going to get pigeonholed by the literary establishment at large yeah and, understand and, that, that what we're talking what nathan rather is talking about here is a is a self-sacrifice for the for the good of the christian publishing industry which is a noble thing but may not be a thing you want to take on yeah yeah and that's why i said you're not obligated at all but i think that with the right kind of push the christian publishing publishing industry has the potential to become something better than it is right now but without novelists to give it that push, it's never going to go there. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, that said, I mean, I, I realize calling other people to martyrdom is bad form, so take it with uh, however much salt you want to take it with. But hey, re-enchant the world, man. That's right. Anyway, go ahead and hit, hit his thirdly. He has a few episode suggestions. The New Heavens slash New Earth and the Resurrection of the Dead. Organized Crime. The Coen Brothers. Johnny Cash. Children's Literature. Marilyn Robinson, Jack Kerouac and the Beat Writers, and comic strips. Uh, by the way, if you're interested in comic strips, this week, last week's uh, Christian Humanist Profiles is with is, is about uh, Peanuts, Charles J. Schultz, or Charles mm-hmm. M. Schultz, excuse me. Stephen J. Lind is the author. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd also be interested in a discussion of denominations and the attempt by some church traditions, such as my own, Church of God Anderson, and as I've gathered, Nathan's, to transcend denominationalism. And just another plug for that Stephen Lind interview, we actually talk quite a bit about the uh, the Church of God Anderson's uh, non-denominationalism. So there you go. It sounds like that episode may have been made for you, uh, Seth. All right. Uh, how have we not done a Coen Brothers episode yet? I don't know. I mean, I would I would be more inclined to make that a trilogy rather than a single episode, or a tetralogy and get Anderson in on it because I know Anderson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Coen Brothers fan. Yeah, because I mean, I, I would definitely uh, want to do Raising Arizona, but I know most people would want to start with Big Lebowski. Uh, I'd do Barton Fink. Oh god, I haven't even seen that one, so I, <laughs> I'd have to Barton go watch Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Uh, yeah, so we already have a triptych for this, this semester, but maybe we can look at that in the fall. Yeah, I think so. Make it a, yeah, I I think you're right. Make it a tetralogy, bring Anderson in on it. The Johnny Cash is another one that's surprising we haven't done. 
but he has yeah. such a big catalog. We'd have to pick an album. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And we've already got our album episode for this year teed up. Yes, indeed. Uh, what else can we do here? Marilyn, have you read Marilyn Robinson? No, I. So many people have suggested Marilyn Robinson to me that I'm ashamed I haven't read Marilyn Robinson, but in fact I have not. Speaking of triptychs, I mean, she literally has a trilogy we could do. Oh, there you go. I don't like Kerouac. I don't know about you. Oh, I mean, uh, it, it depends on what week you catch me. Yeah. No, he has a verve, and I appreciate that verve, but mm-hmm. comic strips would be fun. Yeah. And then, you know, one on the Doctrine of the Resurrection might be fun as well, just to talk about the, you know, the different ways that historically Christians have imagined that. Right. Yeah. So, sounds good. Thanks for it again, Seth. Yes, indeed. All right, our next one is from Derek Varn, uh, and he writes thus, Dear Christian humanist peeps, I am an odd fan. For one, I am not religious, and my background is Catholic and Jewish far more than Protestant. For another, I am an expatriate, though I am from Georgia and used to live near O'Connor's grave in Milledgeville. Anyway, I was going to ask you, how much did you think the first schism affects Protestant Christianity? I mean, the schism that led to the Coptic and Oriental Orthodox churches being out of the church. This seems fascinating to me because of the relationship Alexandrian Christianity had on the church fathers, the culture that gave us Coptic Christianity and also gave us Origen, Tertullian, and Augustine. These figures aren't actually as crucial to the Coptic Church, but they are important. And then I'll just go ahead and read the end of it, too, and then we can backtrack and address this question. Interesting side note, I found Christian altars in the middle of ancient Egyptian temples in Upper Egypt. Apparently, the Alexandrian church outside of Alexandria in Roman in the Roman period uh, hid in places like Karnak in abandoned temples and built churches in them to avoid Roman persecution. Fascinating. Sincerely, your secular fan... See Derek Varn, and he has a postscript. P.S. I have also been a guest on Partially Examined Life, the Derrida Levi Strauss episode. I have my own podcast, and my co host will be on Partially Examined Life, too. I really enjoyed your show showing there. Thank you, Derek. So, backtracking a bit, what do you think about the, uh, the first schism, Michael? Um, you know, I, I attended an Orthodox church for a while, and one thing they were fond of saying is that the uh, the Orthodox church didn't have a Reformation because it didn't need a Reformation. And so, in, in some ways, at least from the Orthodox perspective, that schism makes the Protestant Reformation happen, and it, it perhaps makes it necessary. Because my recollection, at least of the Orthodox people I know, is that they believe the Protestants are closer than the Catholics to the truth. I'm not sure. I'm not sure they really believe that, but that's what they told me as a person oh, no, no. coming in. He, he's not talking about 1066, Michael. He's talking during the ecumenical councils when the Coptic and Oriental Orthodox were declared anathema for their monophysitism. Well, that is uh, nothing I know about. I know that the Coptic oh, okay, okay, okay. The Coptic Church exists, <laughs> uh-huh. but I don't, know, I don't know much about it beyond that. Well, I mean, what Michael just said, I mean, was actually going to be similar to the first part of my answer, Derek, namely that Protestants just don't think about it very much. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I read about it in a mandatory church history class in seminary, but as far as, you know, the uh, existential weight of the anathema of the Coptic church, because I've not been to Egypt myself and because I don't know that many Egyptians who are not Muslim, um, honestly, I mean, it, it's a point of historical import to be sure, but it really doesn't... Uh, 
have much of a gravitational pull on Protestantism. I, I you did, know, I mean, it, it is true that a few years ago when the, the Coptic churches in Egypt were being attacked, mm-hmm. that, that most Protestants I knew considered those Christian brothers under attack. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, I, yeah, I did forget about that angle. What is the uh, doctrine that had them, you, you use the term, I don't, I, what's the doctrine? Oh, and it, and it, and it has so many consonant sounds, I, I fear to say it, but it's a monophysitism, <laughs> uh, in other words, one nature. So it was the doctrine that Christ uh, had only a divine nature, he did not truly have a human nature. Oh, interesting. Now, I, as I remember, that is something that is imposed by the Council of Ephesus, I think, but I'm not sure, on the Coptic Church. It's not something that appears in the Coptic documents themselves. Uh, but it is one of those things that, at the very least, makes things more complicated than sometimes Orthodox converts like to make it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. In other words, I mean the... The fact that, you know, there was no Reformation in the Orthodox Church is true. They never called it that, but they sure did have a string of anathemas. Anyway, I'm sorry, Derek. I'm sorry for my ignorance. <laughs> now, Derek, I, I am uh, uh, grateful that you listened to and appreciated my appearance on PEL. Uh, I, I did, Michael, make the mistake of, do, of breaking the first law of the Internet on that one. Uh, I read the comment section. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh! And did people ever hate me? Uh, but <laughs> well, you wouldn't have been happy otherwise. Oh, true enough. True enough. My uh, my abiding fear that someone somewhere might agree with me. <laughs> um. So, Derek, thank you for writing in. Thank you for listening. And you know, hopefully, folks who have come over here from partially examined life are are enjoying what we do. Uh, I know that, I mean, it was a thrill to uh, get that invitation to go on there. And, you know, uh, Mark Linsenmeyer and Wes Alwyn were just as hospitable as one could hope. I really, really enjoyed doing that show. Our next email is from the Book of Nature's Todd Pedler. Hi, guys. Thanks for a fun episode on baseball. Just a few thoughts about a, as a college ball player myself about the sport that kept me busy for most of my first 21 years. First... Regarding the genteel nature of the sport, as opposed to other sports in general, you noted that there's an aura of respect toward the laws of the game in baseball that seems absent from most other sports. Certainly hockey and football, as you noted, seem less concerned with maintaining an air of respectful conduct than does baseball. One thing I'd note about this is that while it's true there is an honor to the game that doesn't quite manifest itself in many other sports, I'm sure that many high school and college ball players wouldn't quite see the honor of the game today in the same light as players in the mid-20th century did. That said, it's definitely codified in the laws of the game. A friend of mine and grad student in physics in the, in the same research group as I was you i was used to that's a weird sentence sorry uh, as i was used to talk a fair bit about the obscure rules of major league baseball and one of the best that brings out this very issue is this one i i guess he's quoting from the major league baseball rule book seven he is indeed 7.08 any runner is out when uh one after he has acquired legal possession of a base he runs the bases in reverse order for the purpose of confusing the defense or making a travesty of the game <laughs> the umpire shall immediately call time and declare the runner out making travesty of the game todd notes is most certainly 
forbidden. <laughs> I am absolutely certain that the concept of honor in baseball derives nearly entirely from its ancestor cricket, which still maintains a very strict code of conduct and is much, much more tied to its law book than is baseball. One foul word from a player while on the field can result in very substantial penalties, not being tossed from the game but losing a large fraction of his match fee paid as a fine. Golf, mm-hmm. too, has similar connection to laws of the game, and this sometimes results in what seems to many a, to be a strange thing, a player calling a foul on himself when nobody else has seen his infraction. And I don't, I can't believe I did not think about uh, golf, truly a sport for the lawful good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll also say that, I mean, at least something has to be said about the fact that in baseball there's a small, hard object sometimes traveling in excess of 90 miles an hour. That tends to make people polite. Or, or as my dad used to say, you know, don't dance after you hit a homer, or you're going to be plucking a baseball out of your ear with twi- tweezers next time you're at the plate. Secondly, the question of statistics. Baseball certainly does rely a great deal on the numbers that arise in a season. It's one of the things that's really fun for me as a quantitative type. Cricket has this too, and perhaps even more so than baseball. One need only look at a website like crickinfo.com to find out how stat-happy cricket fans are. I have never given the slightest bit of thought to cricket. Uh, nor have I. Sorry. So I, I'm sure we just alienated all our British and Indian listeners, <laughs> if any. All three of them. Third, on both strategy and statistics, one of the big things that makes the Susan Sarandon character so compelling in Bull Durham is her role as the one teaching the game is this grand conflict between individuals and about the role of statistics and the beauty of the game. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie, so I can't speak to that. Oh, it's a glorious movie. It really is. Finally, scheduling. As one who, like you, Michael, has to deal with the realities of the upper Midwest and baseball scheduling, I echo your complaints. For us at Luther College, where he teaches, it is definitely the case that baseball and softball, but baseball more so, makes hash of the second half of the semester syllabus for students. Softball starts their season a bit earlier because they can go up to some indoor facilities in Rochester, Minnesota for a couple of weekends and get in eight or ten games before spring break. Then they typically travel to Florida for that break and play about ten more and return home in late March, hopefully, to a field clear of snow. (laughs) Baseball isn't so lucky, but in order to get in their 35 or so games, they pack the schedule from spring break, their first games are on trips to California or Arizona usually, to commencement. And both teams suffer from the relatively frequent rain or poor field conditions due to rain not coinciding with game days in the first few weeks of the season. And let me add something to that that I just learned last week as I have a baseball player in one of my freshman classes. They have to be on the field six hours before the game starts. So even with a night game, they miss all their afternoon classes. That's That's, nonsense. That's actually against NCAA regs because we had a problem with that at Emanuel. And our faculty uh, athletic representative said that that is not an official rule, and if any player tries to pull that, you should smack them duly. So you're saying my student is lying to me or that our, our team is being mismanaged? Um, I, I couldn't say which of those is the case, but one of them is likely. Well, I will have to bring that up at the next academic affairs meeting. Yes, indeed. Definitely there's an issue for us, back to Todd, here with the weather that we can't control, but also there's a cultural shift that's going on with the baseball in Division Three. and Crown and Luther are both apparently Division Three. Mm-hmm. When I played at Whitman College in Washington State, also a Division Three school, we played perhaps 25 games in a season and had the benefit of playing in a region where we could legitimately start to play outside in mid-February. 
We had a few rainouts, but being in eastern Washington meant such were rare. The main thing is we weren't trying to play 40 games in a season that starts in early March. Yeah, with that, I agree. <laughs> the number of games that Division Three teams expect to play really has increased, and this has the expected impact. It used to be, as far as I know, and I now sound like that guy who yells at the kids to get off his lawn, <laughs> that only Division One played more than 40 games a year, but they and everyone else have now really upped the ante in the last couple decades. It would be interesting to see how all this coincides with the massive increase in professionalization of baseball down to T-ball age kids, and why why are they adding games to Division Three schools? Division Three athletes are not going on to the majors. They have about as much chance of that as I do. This is me talking, not Todd. I, and, and like it, it really bothers me that that sports are taking over in a in Division Three school, which really should be sports for the fun of it. Don't you think? Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm annoyed. Anyway, thanks again for the show, says Todd. Very good. Well, I got to figure about, out this thing about the, the the six hours. That's uh, that disturbs me. Yeah, because well, here's here's why I know this, Michael. Because this very year we've had uh, baseball players trying to tell professors that if they've got a three thirty p.m. game, that they can't come to their noon classes. And you know, someone brought that up at a faculty council meeting, and our our faculty faculty athletic representative. There we go said, no, that is absolutely against NCAA rules. They cannot miss class for that. And, you know, the response from the professor was, well, can you let the players know that we know that? <laughs> okay, well, I, I, uh, I will go maybe talk to the baseball coach Yeah, and figure absolutely. out if this is true. Very good. We've got another one from uh, Todd Pedler, and he says, hi, your show this week on Trilling made a number of things click. Among them was the selection of readings we had for my first year common course when I was a freshman at Whitman. The theme was the origins of modernism, and among our first semester readings was no Trilling, but we read selections from The Critique of Pure Reason and of Judgment by Kant, Darwin's Origin of Species, a number of Victorian-era works, including Hard Times and some Yeats poetry, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, but here's the kicker, Genealogy of Morals from Nietzsche, Civilization and its Discontents from Freud, and Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Hadn't necessarily put all that together in terms of someone's thought, but I su suspect, in retrospect, that the course's planners must have read Trilling. Maybe so. I mean, Genealogy of Morals, Civilization and its Discontents, and Heart of Darkness really do go together. But oh, yeah. It makes absolutely. sense. I mean, that, that Trilling episode is very famous, and... And if I were organizing such a course, I would probably put them on there, at least partially influenced yeah. by Trilling. I, I hope you meant the Trilling essay. What did I call it? You said the Trilling episode is famous. I said, well, thinking highly of ourselves, are we? Sorry, yeah, the Trilling essay. <laughs> I, I was not on the Trilling essay, but I, uh, like Todd, enjoyed listening to it. Now you said essay instead of episode. Oh, there. <laughs> yes, folks, we are both uh, in that uh, mid-semester uh, slump. Yeah, our uh, our spring break uh, begins tomorrow, and uh, I've kind of already checked out. Yeah, my my spring break was eaten up by the uh, opening weekend of Little League Baseball, so I was actually more tired at the end of spring break than I was at the beginning. Our last uh, email here is from Aaron Gavin. Guys, I have two quick thoughts regarding your discussion of the gender dynamic between Potiphar's wife and Joseph. First, several times the comment was made that it was a Victorian idea that men want sex desperately, 
and women put up with it. I think this is a mentality that still permeates much of Christian culture, or at least the brand of fairly conservative, though mainstream, Christian culture that I have my roots in. While this may never be explicitly said, I do see it implied how sex is talked about or not talked about in the church generally, and to boys and girls specifically. I think a recent Christian feminist podcast dealt with this topic. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's one that they've dealt with in a few episodes. Uh, which one did you have in mind, Michael? Did they not? They did one on, it was a Lauren uh, Wilford article from Christianity Today they did a recent episode on. I can't remember what oh, the episode is uh, called. Yeah, uh, oh, shoot, what is it? It's the uh, purity culture and the teen cancer romance or that, something like that, that. That's right, yeah. So that, that, uh, that, that, that's a really good episode. It really was. So, Aaron, that might be something you want to listen to because they, they address that in some detail with both personal experience and some semi-sociological analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, second, and related to the first, I think how churches talk about Potiphar's wife demonstrates well that false dichotomy of female sexuality. Either a woman is virginal and pure, or she is a destructive sex maniac. What Potiphar's wife tried to do was wrong, but I think what is often emphasized and castigated in the story is her sexuality and her desire for sex in general. I once overheard a young Christian guy say to another, paraphrased slightly due to the ravages of time on my memory, my <laughs> wife really likes sex. She's up for it whenever. The se- <laughs> Gross. I can't imagine having that conversation. No, the, nor can I. The second guy said, I'm sure she's glad you told me that. We'll see, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm with the second guy. The implication was not that the second guy thought the wife would be annoyed that some intimate personal aspect of her relationship with her husband had been exposed. Rather, the comments seemed to imply that she would, should, be embarrassed to have people know that she enjoys sex, that this indicated some weakness, even sin, on her part. Of course, I guess the second guy's not on my side then. Cause I'm, I'm well, just, that's what he meant. I mean, I, I if if I had heard that, I would have interpreted it the way you did, Michael. That boy, that's really not yours to be talking about. Yeah, well, and it may be that that we're here, we're not hearing tone of voice and things like that. Oh, sure, sure. Of course, this dichotomy is seen not just in the church, but in much of our modern pop culture as well. For example, Disney movies. But I do think the church needs to think more on how we talk about women and sexuality in general, and how we talk about some specific stories. I know that this episode wasn't about sexual politics, but your touching on the gender dynamic did lead me to think on this. I agree with them. The church needs mm-hmm. to think more about how we talk about women. Well, yeah, and I think his initial point is right on that, I mean, uh, and I'm, I'm going to show my age here, but I mean, when I think about that sort of Darwinian, you know, the active male and the passive female which, of course, gets picked up by Nietzsche and Freud as well. But uh, I, I think it's fascinating that, among others, Jim Dobson picks up on that and makes it sort of the cornerstone of his model of, you know, family therapy and family politics. Um, I mean, you know, that's, that's something that it's an assumption about, you know, male and female identity, if you will, uh, that, Frankly, I mean, you know, they're borrowing it from the strangest people, but I, I've, I've also found that, you know, partisan politics makes the strangest bedfellows. Fair enough. He says he's relatively new to the program, so if you've already done this, please excuse me, but I'd enjoy an episode on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. This and The Little Prince, which I know you have done, are two books I read in high school that influenced me quite a bit. Both have that trick of seeming like they're written just for you, or at least no one quite understands them the way you do. Thanks, Aaron. I've never read Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh man, I, I have read and I have loved Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I, <laughs> I mean, I, that, that brand of humor, uh, which of course, I mean, you know, isn't unique with Adams. It's also 
Kurt Vonnegut. It's also Voltaire. Uh, but I mean, the sort of uh, narrate the absurd and then drop a one-liner style of comic writing. I, I just eat that stuff up. I could read that all day. I know I need to read it, but somehow the longer you haven't read, read something you know you should read, the less you want to read it. Maybe oh, that's I, just me. It's the imp of the no, universe. I, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that. Uh, that said, you know, Aaron, I mean, if uh, I, I don't know if Grubbs has read it either. Oh, surely Grubbs has read it. Does that well, not seem like the sort of book Grubbs would have read? It does, but I don't want to assume that. <laughs> but at any rate, Aaron, if, if 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 at some point we have occasion to work up a uh, you know a a five part trilogy on that series, uh, we might work that up. What is a five part series called? Oh, I don't know, but the, on the uh, fifth uh, Hitchhiker's novel. Uh, the the cover says the uh, the fifth installment of the increasingly inappropriate titled Hitchhiker's Trilogy. That's funny. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and that's that's Douglas Adams right there. I love it. Well, that's all the emails we've got for today. Nathan, yes, and- what are we doing next week? Well, uh, you know, I've tried this twice now, so I'm going to see if the third time is the charm. We're going to try to do Top Gun next week. If we can't, we're just going to have to give up on it and never talk about that movie again, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, folks, that's all the uh, listener feedback we're going to talk about today. If we missed your email or if we missed your Facebook message, feel free to email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com and castigate us for missing that. Uh, if you're inclined, go over to iTunes, give us a five-star review. Every review that we get there gets us out there to more and more listeners. It puts us higher in the search results and therefore gets more people in on the party. And that's what we're all about here. You can also find us on Facebook. Each of the shows in our network has its own Facebook page with the exception of Christian Humanist Profiles because we're just lazy that way. And also you can find us on the web at ChristianHumanist.org. That's where we post show announcements for all six of our shows. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, do a teaser here and say that soon we will be able to see, say, each of our seven shows. You'll just have to stay tuned to find out what that seventh show might deal with. Until then, until you find out about the seventh show, until we post our episode, hopefully on Top Gun, uh, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael Farmer and also the rest of the Christian Humanist Radio Network crew. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Amber Lee Copeland. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.